Our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 to 20a. By this time, Samuel had died. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city, and Saul had uh, removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. The, Phil the Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid, and his heart pounded. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams, or by the Urim, or by the prophets. Saul then said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium, so I can go and consult her. His servants replied, there is a woman at Endor who is a medium. Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men. They came to the woman at night, and Saul said, Consult a spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said to him, You surely know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you setting a trap for me to get me killed? Then Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this. Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, and then she asked Saul, Why did you deceive me? You are Saul. But the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a spirit, I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. Then Saul asked her, What does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up, Samuel asked Saul. I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me no more, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. Samuel answered, since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. You did not obey the Lord and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell flat on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning again, church. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 28, the passage our friend Chaz read so well for us a moment ago. Today we're stepping back into our study of this book after taking a couple of weeks to sort of reacquaint ourselves with who we are as a church. We've been looking at our vision and our values over the past couple of weeks, but today we are uh, picking back up in our series titled, When Mess Meets Mercy, uh, the Gospel of First Samuel. Now, we only have a few chapters left in this book, and then we're going to step into a study of the Gospel of Luke, so that's something for us all to look forward to. Now, if you're familiar with the book of 1 Samuel, you might have been looking forward to this text. This is one of those texts that many people who read and study the Bible are curious about. They have lots of questions when you have a story like this found in the scriptures. Now, this is no doubt one of the most perplexing passages, 
not only in the book of 1 Samuel, but in the whole Bible itself. And I was tempted to title this message, The Talking Dead, uh, because that's sort, of what, uh, that's sort of what's going down. You have, you have Saul, uh, Samuel, this dead prophet, being summoned to speak with Saul. It's kind of creepy. It's like something out of a scary movie. We don't know what to make of stuff like this. But more than being scary, this passage is sad. This is a tragic text that further seals the fate of the failed King Saul. And so before we take it up and look at it together today, let me voice one more prayer for us as we do. Heavenly Father, with our Bibles open, would you now open our hearts to receive your word? Would you give us ears to hear your voice? Teach us, instruct us, conform us into the image of Christ that we might trust Jesus all the days of our lives. Father, we love you, and we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you, what are you most afraid of? What kept you up at night when you were a child? Well, when I was a kid, I know it sounds cliche, but I was deathly afraid of clowns. And, and, and I know that's pretty common. I know that's sort of a cliche, but I have thought about why clowns freaked me out at the kid. And, and a big reason why clowns freaked me out is because they have smiles painted on their faces. So no matter what mood they're in, if you look at their mouths, it looks like they're happy. Uh, but if you move up the face and you look into their eyes, you might find those eyes telling a different story. And when there's a disconnect between a painted smile and the mood in a person's eyes, that's a scary thing. That's the type of thing that freaked me out about clowns as a kid. But now that I've gotten older, I'll be honest, it's the same reason why I'm afraid of politicians. Uh, because they may have a smile on their face, but you look into their eyes, and their eyes may be depicting a different mood. Their eyes may be telling a different story, and that's, that's pretty creepy. It's something that I'm afraid of. But what about you? What are you most afraid of? What, what scares you? Well, in this passage, Saul is confronted with what should have been his biggest fear. And I'm not talking about the Philistines. The Philistines were scary, to be sure. And we're told at the beginning of the passage that the Philistines had rallied their troops and their forces, camping at a place called Shunem. Now, this was a bold and aggressive move on their part because that location allowed them to kind of cut off and to control a major trade route through that region that would later come to be known as Galilee. And, and so they're there. They're trying to take advantage of this area of the region and and so that made Saul, that meant Saul had to act. And so Saul rallied the Israel forces and they went to a place called Gilboa and Saul began to ready them for battle. But we're told in verse 5 that when Saul saw the Philistines, that's a mouthful, Saul saw the Philistines, he became afraid. It says that he was afraid and his heart pounded. And there is good reason for him to be afraid of the Philistines. The Philistines were a powerful people. They were a ferocious people. They hated Israel. So it makes sense that Saul's palms got sweaty, and it makes sense that his heart rate began to climb. But the Philistines were far from being his biggest problem in this moment. They are not what he should have feared the most. You see in verse 6 that in response to the fear that was marking his response to the Philistines, it says in verse 6 that Saul turned and inquired of the Lord, but... The Lord did not answer him. And later in his conversation with Samuel, he says, God has 
turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore. So the Philistines were a problem. He should have been afraid to them to some degree. But the silence of God, the silence of God was a far bigger problem. It was a much bigger reason for Saul to be afraid. Now, if you're new to this book, or maybe you're stepping into this study for the first time, God's silence might cause you to scratch your head. It might confuse you a bit. That the silence of God towards Saul might cause you to question some of the things you've come to believe about God because you are trusting in Jesus and you are aware of the gospel. And, and so you might think that the silence of God towards Saul is unjust, it's unfair. And you might, want, you might want to kind of shake your fist at the Lord and sympathize with Saul. But you have to understand that the silence of God didn't just happen. It wasn't arbitrary. The silence of God in Saul's life at this point in time was the result of a long history, a long history of faithless and frustrating decisions that the king made repeatedly. All throughout the story, Saul's been proud. All throughout the story, Saul's been self-centered. There's been many times when Saul sought to use the Lord to fulfill his desires rather than to serve the Lord in the ways that God Desire That has happened time and time again in Saul's life. And the Lord's been patient with him. He's been patient with Saul, even though Saul never submits to him. And there's no love for God. There's no worship of God. There's no true faith in the Lord that comes out of the heart of Saul at any point during his, during his story. And the Lord's been patient, has granted him many opportunities to, to repent, many opportunities to humble himself and to, and to acknowledge that dynamic between his and how he's been relating to the Lord. But Saul never repents. He never turns from doing things his way and start trusting in the Lord's way. Now, there are moments when he sort of pretends to do so where he pretends to repent and he kind of, kind of, kind of fakes it in order to get out of a, a precarious situation. But sincere repentance, sincere faith, sincere love, all of that seems to be absent from Saul's life. And there are three ways that God tended to speak throughout the Old Testament, and, and they're identified there in verse 6. And none of these ways are, are being given to Saul. We're told first that the Lord didn't speak to him by way of dreams. That the Lord wasn't showing up in his dreams and speaking to him the way that he has done and does often throughout the Old Testament, appearing to men and women of faith to reveal his will to them and to speak his word over them. And Saul here isn't experiencing that. But then we're also told that the Lord didn't speak to him by way of the Urim. Now, the Urim was a type of gemstone, and it was used in combination with the Thummim and and these together, these two gemstones were used to try to discern and to discover God's will in a given situation. It was a way that God spoke to his people throughout the Old Testament. But the only people authorized to use these gemstones in that way were the priests. And if you're familiar with Saul's story, there was a moment where Saul cut that out of Israel. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 22 that the Saul did this to the priests. He said to a man named Doeg, go and execute the priests. 
So Doeg the Edomite went and executed the priests himself. On that day, he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephods. Now the linen ephods, that's where these gemstones hung out. That's where they lived. And so the priests always had them at their disposal, ready to use them so that God's people could hear from God and discern his will. But now, that's not available to Saul. God's not speaking through that. Why? Well, because Saul slaughtered everyone. Saul was a bad, bad guy. Now, there are moments where he's, he has, there's a bit of ambiguity with him, and he kind of resembles us in some ways, but there are other moments where he just does some terrible, terrible things. And we're also told that he couldn't hear from the Lord through the prophets. And the reason for that is because the last faithful prophet, the guy named Samuel, he's dead. He's been buried. And even if he could hear from Samuel, chances are he's not going to like what he hears. Because the last thing this prophet told Saul was that the Lord was going to rip the kingdom from his hands and give it to another guy named David. That was the last message a prophet delivered to Saul. And so even if a prophet was around to speak to him, he's likely not going to want to hear what he has to say. And so Saul should have feared the silence of God far more than he should have feared the Philistine forces. I mean, can you imagine if God was silent? Can you imagine if God didn't speak? Can you imagine what it would be like if the Lord didn't speak through creation to declare that he is? Or could you imagine that the Lord didn't speak through scripture to clarify who he is and what he is like? Could you imagine if the Lord didn't speak to warn us against dangerous and dehumanizing effects of sin? Could you imagine if the Lord wasn't speaking words of promise to save and to redeem and to forgive and to make things right? Could you imagine if the Lord was silent on all of those fronts? Can you imagine if the Lord didn't speak through the sending of his son Jesus, the word of God that took on flesh, the embodied speech of God? Could you imagine if God was silent. Now, if that were the case, many of us would have to become like clowns. And we would have to paint smiles on our faces because there'd be no reason for us for hope. There'd be no reason for joy. There'd be no reason for life if God remained silent. You see, a silent God, that is something to be afraid of. But Saul doesn't seem to be afraid of that. He isn't fearing the silence of the Lord in his life. He's fearing the Philistines. And so he decides to deal with that fear in a shocking way, in a scandalous way. You look at verse 7. He turns to his servants and he says, find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her. Now, this was a big no-no. Saul should not have done this. Now, earlier in the chapter, we're told that he did kind of wipe out some mediums and some spiritists in the land. And, and to be honest with you, that was probably one of the more faithful things that Saul does throughout his reign as king. But at this point in time, he's no longer remaining faithful to what the Lord says that they should do if this type of practice is happening. And, and he goes to consult a medium. The Lord was very clear about these types of practices and about these types of dynamics. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, this is what the Lord says in his, in his law. He had already spoken, no one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire, practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or a spiritist, it's pretty clear, 
or inquire of the dead. Everyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, and the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. And then there's Leviticus chapter 20. Whoever turns to mediums or spiritists and prostitutes himself with them, I will turn against that person and cut him off from his people. So God was very clear that his people should stay away from those things. But here's the deal. The Lord told his people to stay away from those types of practices, not because they didn't work. He told them to stay away from such practices because they were wicked. That they were faithless. They were Christless. You see, the Lord knows that to practice these types of things is to make ourselves vulnerable to all sorts of deception, to all sorts of distortions, to all sorts of even demonic influences. It's sort of like opening a window after a gas bomb detonates outside. And that poisonous stuff on the outside begins to seep in and affect things on the inside. Well, the enemy's influence can enter our lives through these types of cultic practices. Now, our culture tends to assume that any form of spirituality is good. We say things like a gentleman said to me last week, I am spiritual but not religious. And the assumption is, is that being spiritual, and if something is spiritual, then it is inherently good, that it's inherently pure. But not all spirituality is good. Not every spirit is clean. In Acts chapter 8, we're told a story about a powerful magician by the name of Simon. And Simon was gaining quite a following because he practiced sorcery and he was able to tap into some things that, that got people's attention. He was so effective in what he was practicing that people nicknamed him the great power of God. And many people listened to him. Many people followed him. He talked about Jesus. He heard about this miracle-working Nazarene, and he would speak Jesus' name. He talked about the kingdom of God. He just kind of folded Jesus and the kingdom of God into the other forms of spirituality and things that he was tuned into. And, but then one day the apostles showed up, and the apostles demonstrated a much bigger power, a much stronger, purer power. And we're told that the, the apostles, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were able to see right through this guy. They saw right through him, and their assessment was that this guy was poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. And so these guys exposed and ended his influence in that day. Now, there are strange forces at play in a fallen world. There are strange forces at play in a fallen world, and just because someone can tap into them, just because someone can turn them doesn't mean they should. And it certainly doesn't mean that followers of Jesus who are filled with the Holy Spirit should seek them out or trust in them in any discernible way. And so one of the things that this passage warns us against is it warns God's people away from flirting with or being entertained by mediums, psychics, palm readers, all those things you tend to see in strip malls. Like This passage does encourage you and I to stay away from that, lest we open ourselves up to deception and Christ-less demonizing influences. 
Instead, what we want to do is we want to trust God's assessment and trust his word on these matters. We want to turn towards him and not away from him when we are afraid or when we are confused or when we are confronted with the silence of God. When we're feeling distant or the Lord seems remote in our lives, we don't run in that direction. Now, Saul here is committing a serious transgression. It's a big deal what he's doing. And so the servants tell him, there's a woman at a place called Endor who is a medium. And Saul's thinking to himself, Endor, isn't that where the Ewoks live? Is that where I'm supposed to go? And then he dresses up like a Jedi. He gets in a disguise and he moves in that direction. Now this was a, a risky move. It was bold. It was dangerous because to get to Endor, he had to go through the territory that was occupied by the Philistines. So he had to sneak through there at night in order to find what he was looking for. But his fear is misplaced. He's afraid of the wrong thing, and his efforts are misdirected. He's doing the wrong things. Now, if you followed Jesus for any length of time, had a relationship with the Lord, the silence of God is something that we are confronted with at different stages and different seasons of life. There are times when the Lord seems distant, he seems aloof, he seems silent. We open our Bibles and the words don't pop off the page. Or we're having to make a decision between a couple of good options. And we're praying and we're asking or we're trying to lean into our relationship with the Lord. But he's not giving us any clarity on what we should do. And so we become afraid sometimes about potential outcomes. Well, what if I make the wrong choice or the wrong decision? If you've followed Jesus for any length of time, there are seasons and stretches for various reasons. When it seems as though the Lord's gone silent, or it seems as though the Lord is distant and removed from us. But when we're confronted with those moments, what do we do? How do we respond? Do we respond to the silence of God by resorting to faithless practices? Do we turn to alternative forms of religions or to alternative forms of spiritualities, believing that, well, the pragmatic impact of my faith in Christ doesn't seem to be there, so I'm going to go for something else? Do we turn and move in the wrong direction? Well, that's what Saul does here when he's dealing with his fear of the Philistines and God's not speaking to him. But Saul's an example of what not to do. But he has a counterpart named David, a counterpart named David who also experienced to some degree the silence of God in his life. And yet David responded in that moment in a completely different way. You take Psalm 13, for example. David asks the question, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? And so when God seems distant and he seems remote in David's life, what does he do? Well, he doesn't turn away from the Lord and pursue something wild and crazy and bizarre. Instead, he leans into his relationship with the Lord. He turns towards his seemingly silent God, and he complains to the Lord about his silence. This is one who understands the faithful love of God. This is one who understands who he is in relationship with the Lord. And so he presses in, and he brings his complaints. He brings his frustrations directly to him. He cries out with a type of stubborn resolve. You keep reading Psalm 13. He says, consider me and answer, Lord my God, restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise, I will sleep in death. 
My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. This is how we respond to the silence of God. We turn towards him and we work out our faith in the context of his faithful love. We lean into the Lord. We don't pull back from the Lord when things seem dry, when things seem distant, when God seems silent. This is exactly how Jesus would teach his disciples to pray. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus looks to his disciples and he says, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me. The door is locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. Jesus then says, I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because, I love this phrase, because of his friend's shameless boldness, shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And then he goes on to say, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Shameless boldness is what's what's needed when we're confronted with the silence of God. A shameless boldness that doesn't walk away from the Lord, but stands still and looks up and cries out. Asking, seeking, knocking, refusing, refusing to settle for the silence of God. And refusing to solve the silence of God by pursuing something else. This was David's response. But Saul doesn't take that approach. He goes in the opposite direction. He goes to this woman in Endor, and at first the woman is suspicious. She worries it's a sting operation, that Saul's there to get her, like he's gotten all the other mediums and all the other spiritists in the land. But Saul assures her that he's not there to take her out. He's not there to harm her in any way. And and he does so in a blasphemous way. He swears to her by the Lord. This is such a backward and outrageous moment. Saul takes the Lord's name in vain, swears by him while at the same time betraying him. It's such a complicated and outrageous conversation. It's a mess. And he asks her to bring Samuel up so that he could speak to him. And at this point, something gave him away. And she realized that this disguised figure was, in fact, the king of Israel, and she screams. Now, we don't know why she screams out. There are different explanations. Some suggest that maybe she screams because she's actually a fraud, that she's not quite able to do what she does. She's more of a shyster, and so she screams because something happens, and she's never seen anything like this happen, so she gets scared. Others think, well, she's screaming because she's realizing she's not in control of the situation. That she hasn't even had a chance to do anything to conjure Samuel's presence. That someone else is in control because Samuel's showing up. She hasn't done anything yet, so she's screaming because she realizes she's not in control of what's about to go down. Regardless of why she screams, something happens. Samuel, this spirit form pops in and comes from the earth and he's wearing a robe which was Samuel's trademark style 
This robe is what he ripped the last time he talked with Saul. And so once they saw the robe, they kind of knew it was Samuel. It was his trademark style, kind of like Pastor Mark over in West Seattle wearing pocket squares. He's kind of know, yeah, that's, that's, that's Mark. Or Pastor Jeff up north wearing a ball cap outside of service on Sundays. He's just always wearing the cap. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's his style. That's his thing. Well, this was his Samuel. Samuel's trademark style was this robe. And so once the robe is acknowledged, it gives him away. And, and then we're told that Saul bows down before him, which is the first time Saul has bowed before anyone. And he's bowing before the ghost of a prophet. He says, look, I'm, I'm in serious trouble. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. Notice he leaves out the priests. He's not talking about the Ummim because, well, for good reason. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. And at this point, Saul finds himself confronted, not just with the silence of God, but what happens is he's now being confronted with the sovereignty of God. The Lord commandeers the situation. The Lord takes control, in my view, of what's about to be said and spoken. God commandeers this moment to further seal the fate of the failed king Saul. He reminds Saul, Samuel, the prophet, everything he says is true. Everything this ghost of Samuel says is right. He reminds Saul of the past judgment of God in verse 17. The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand. And given it to your neighbor, David. Then he goes on to affirm the present judgment of God. He says, you did not obey the Lord and did not carry out this burning anger against Amalek, which is something he failed to do a few chapters prior. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today, the present judgment of God. But then he turns his attention to the future judgment of God. He says, the Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. And so rather than sitting before the silence of God in repentance and humility, Saul seeks guidance from a medium and a ghost. But what Saul discovers now is that no matter where he goes, he can't escape the sovereignty of God. He can't get away from the presence of the Lord, that sovereignty is inescapable even when God seems silent and remote and removed from a person's life, there's, really, there's nowhere else for us to turn. There's nowhere else for us to go. Saul's counterpart, David, knew this to be true. This is why he wrote those words in Psalm 139. He says, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is the place of the dead, you are there. Saul cannot escape the presence and the power of a, sol- of, a, of a sovereign God. And ultimately, you and I can't escape the presence and the power of a sovereign God. The disciples learned this lesson in a different kind of way. There was a moment when Jesus was speaking to a large group of people. But what he told them, they didn't like. It was a hard teaching about putting faith in him and trusting in him. And and after he finished giving this teaching, the vast majority of people turned and walked away. They went elsewhere. But then Peter came up to Jesus and he wisely stated, Lord, to whom will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. 
And Peter affirmed the fact that there's nowhere else to go. Even if I don't like what you have to tell me about myself, Jesus, I have nowhere else to go. Even if I'm confronted with your silence for seasons and stretches in my discipleship, I have nowhere else to go. And so you have this stubborn, shameless resolve to stick with Jesus because Peter knew there was nowhere else for him to turn. And that was what David knew. That's what everyone knew, it seems, but Saul, when you take these people, their stories into consideration. And so as followers of Jesus, the reason why we believe in Jesus and we trust in the gospel is because we found in Jesus what we can't find anywhere else. We've found in Jesus life and hope and joy. We've found in Jesus forgiveness of sins, future, eternal life. We've found everything we've needed in Jesus and nobody else can give it to us. There's no other person, place, or thing in the world that can do for us what Jesus does for us. And so we stick with Jesus. We stick with Jesus. Because our only other option is to experience kind of what Saul experiences at the end of this story. Our only other option is to move towards the separation of God. And this is why Saul's story ends sadly here. It ends with separation. He was terrified by Samuel's words and he was weakened by the fact that he hadn't had any food. And and so the medium then says, well, why don't you let me feed you and then you can just get on your way. You can get out of here. (laughs) She doesn't want him around anymore. After some debate, Saul conceded and she proceeded to feed him his last meal, a final meal. We're told she slaughtered a fattened calf and she fed him some unleavened bread and then you have this most ominous statement there at the end of verse 25 you might want to underline it this ominous ending where we're told afterward after that meal they got up and left that night and the next day Saul will be killed on the battlefield now the narrator's emphasis that all of this took place at night understand that this detail isn't just given Sephora for a historical record now it was a historical fact that Saul met with this woman at night and left her home at night but this detail is given to reinforce a spiritual assessment of where Saul stood in his relationship with the Lord Saul is in darkness and nothing changes Saul's going to die in darkness. Separation from God is darkness. So it is an ominous detail, but it is also one that the gospel writers pick up and use as well. The apostle John, when he writes his gospel, he takes the same approach. We're told in John chapter 3 that there was a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. And that detail, yes, a historical fact, but it was a spiritual assessment of where Nicodemus stood in his relationship with the Lord. And so he comes to Jesus at night because he's curious about how he can enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells him, confronts him, challenges him, says, look, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. The light has to come on in your heart. And so Jesus would confront him with that reality. So that The fact that Nicodemus came to him at night, it was indicative of where he stood in relationship with the Lord. And that was surprising to everyone because Nicodemus was a good guy. He was a religious, reputable man. 
He was respected by many, and yet Jesus still saw him that way. And then there's another ominous ending to a final meal that happens in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, referring to Judas at the Last Supper, we're, we're told this. After receiving the piece of bread, he, that is Judas, immediately left, and it was night. And this, too, would serve as historical detail and a spiritual assessment of Judas's separation from God. And if you know the storyline of the gospel, Judas would then proceed to betray Jesus to the officials that would take Jesus, that would try him, that would beat him, and that would sentence him to crucifixion. And as Jesus was hanging on the cross, we're told that he was nailed to the cross in the middle of the day. But then something happened at noon. We're told that when it was noon in Mark's gospel, that darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And Jesus' cry from the cross would only be met with the silence of God. His question wasn't answered. And Jesus would breathe his last breath in that moment and experience and endure separation from the favor of his heavenly Father. And what goes down in Jesus' life on the cross was the experience of God's silence, was the experience of God's separation. Jesus went through hell on the cross. But just as our sovereign God commandeered Saul's encounter with Samuel, our sovereign God commandeered the cross of Christ. And he would work this out so that sinners and sufferers like you and me might be brought into relationship with God that isn't marked by darkness, but that is filled with light. That Jesus would endure the silence of God and the separation of God all so that you and I never have to. All so that you and I might come to God through Jesus, put our faith in Jesus, finding our sins forgiven because the judgment of God fell upon him instead of us. This is one of the beautiful things about being a Christian is living under the freedom of knowing that all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been judged already. Past, present, and future judgment falling on the Savior's crucifixion. And so we come to Jesus. We've got nowhere else to go because no one else can take that for us. No one else would be willing to do that for us. Yet Jesus endured the silence of God, the separation of God, so that you and I never have to, so that we don't have to live in darkness, but we can step out into the light and be with Jesus there. We can exercise a stubborn resolve to cry out to the Lord forever and always, even in those stretches of life when our faith seems dry and the Lord seems silent or he seems remote. Because of Jesus, his silence will break. And because of Jesus, any separation we feel in our relationship with God absolves. Now, there may be moments where we have to repent and confess because maybe the distance is the result of stuff that we're harboring and stuff that we're hiding and we're not walking in the light as he is in the light. And when we're not walking in the light, yes, fellowship with God can be subdued. It can be dampened. 
But because of Jesus, we come out into the light. We trust in him and we follow him. So we're honest about who we are and we're honest about what we are like. And when God confronts us with the truth about who we are and with the truth about what we're like, we don't shrink back from that. We agree with him and then we ask him for help. We say, yeah, Jesus, you're right. I was wrong. Yeah, Jesus, you're right about that too. Help me. And as we lean into that moment because of what Jesus experienced on the cross in our stead, we live our lives enjoying the freedom of a right relationship with God that isn't marked by night and darkness, but that is marked by daytime and light. So we live there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to grow today in our appreciation of what the Savior did for us. Thank you, Jesus, for not turning away from your heavenly Father, but for turning towards him as you were being crucified. Thank you, Father, for raising your son Jesus from the dead, bringing him out of that dark tomb and into the light of resurrected life. God, would you allow the same thing to happen within us? That we might live in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Walking before you because you have taken care of the one thing we should fear the most. And that is life without you, life apart from you. God, would you give us grace to appreciate what you have done so that we might go the way of David and not the way of Saul that we might go the way of Peter and not the way of Judas. God, we thank you and we praise you now in Jesus' name.